0: Welcome, everyone, to the Drexel Writing Center podcast in our first episode. So we have four peer readers here today. I'm Evan Westman. I've been with the center for about two and a half years now as a peer reader. What's up? My name is Janae. My pronouns are they, them.
1: Um, am I including my last name? If you want, I guess. Janae Kent, they, them. What's poppin'? I've been with the Drexel Writing Center for sh- four years now it's been a hot minute we've been there a lot of terms yeah i'm a fifth year english major on my way out this jam
2: my name is upoma chakraborty my pronouns are she her this would be yeah two and a half years at the drexel writing center i believe evan Evan and i started at the same time i think that's about it yeah i'm an english major so obviously i love to do this
3: hi my name's anuno and yeah i guess i've been here for like around two years. So
0: for those who don't know the Drexel Writing Center, I mean the name says a lot but we are where students both graduate and undergraduate bring their work to have peer tutors like us help them work through it. We do a lot of other things behind the scenes too and we'll be getting into a bit of that today. Do any of you want to add anything I missed there for like what the center does.
2: I mean, I guess I'd like to add the fact that the center works with every individual, um, as long as they're a part of the university. It doesn't matter if you're at the undergraduate level or PhD level, it doesn't matter if you have a disability or not, we welcome everyone, and I think that's really important.
0: Definitely agree there. Thank you for adding that. So today we are going through just a few specific questions about our work with anti-racist pedagogy. So. The first question we're going to go through is what is anti-racist pedagogy and how does it relate to our work in the writing center
2: i mean it's incredibly difficult to define first and foremost but i think one of the most important aspects of anti-racist pedagogy is acknowledging and almost i don't know if this is the correct word but like decolonizing the way you think about english the way you think about what is good writing and getting rid of very racist tendencies that have built up over the years in academia And just stripping away at that. I think it's best to find through examples. You read a lot of things that are not in standard English, right? And then you learn why they are still really excellent pieces. And we do a lot of that at the center. And then we apply that to whenever students come in. And I think that's where the real work is done is when you talk to students about anti-racist pedagogy and what it is and how they can apply it in their writing.
1: Yeah, definitely. To go off of that... Anti-racist pedagogy is an approach to working with writing and being a writer. So whether you're tutoring someone or whether you're doing the writing yourself, it's an approach that acknowledges the equality of all dialects of English in different languages. So it's an acknowledgement of linguistic diversity. And it's, you know, the pedagogical aspect of it is how you approach writing and writing instruction or writing tutoring in a way that is sensitive to and, like, respectful of the different linguistic tool sets that people are bringing to the table. Because nobody, you know, speaks what we call standard academic English as we know it in the university, but, you know, professors and the structure of the university encourages people to try and perform this notion of academic English, which nobody actually authentically speaks or writes. Because like Opoma said, like, we read so many works that just aren't standard English, and they're not standard academic English, but we respect them. And to get into the colonial aspect of it, like, many of those, if not most, if not all of those works are Eurocentric works that we're, you know, finding ways to respect, like Shakespeare. It's a totally different dialect of English, and there are whole guides and whole websites dedicated to studying it. But you look at, say, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God, and there's no resources for the dialect of, you know, African-American vernacular English that that book is centered on. So it's it's about approaching linguistic diversity. and. It's about accepting and centering linguistic diversity because we are all linguistically diverse.
2: And then just to add on to that um, with your example of Their Eyes Were Watching God versus Shakespeare, you know, whenever we read Shakespeare, we kind of act like, yeah, we know what he's saying. We don't need a translation along with him, right? But we do, right? Because that's not standard academic English, but we still study that, right? And if anything, you're looked down upon if you don't know what Shakespeare is. But then you introduce a text like Their Eyes Were Watching God which most people would universally understand, and then we don't teach that, right? Or other places don't teach that. And so it's really about, again, Janae, I loved your point about introducing that variety and that diversity within the language itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you guys have said. I think you put it a lot better than I could have. The only thing I would add is that, like, I guess kind of building on, I liked the word you used, a, um decolonizing. Mm-hmm kind of looking at, like, how, at least within America, and most, I would say probably most English-speaking countries, there is this version of English, standard academic English, that has been propagated as, like, proper. And I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with it in itself, except that it is the only accepted kind of English in a lot of fields. So it ends up, and, and through working in the center, like... I've learned how, like, the prevalence of that and how that is kind of one of the only, or really the only, accepted kind of English in a lot of academic settings is a form of, like, oppressing other dialects. And especially, it's a hindrance for people who weren't raised speaking that kind of English, whether they were raised with, like, a different kind of English or a different language entirely. It's a real limitation to them. And I think we'll get into this more later, but it really, the only real purpose that serves is just creating more, like, prevalence for, I guess, standard academic English. It's not really enhancing anyone's writing to, and really is limiting it from what I've learned through the center. Like, it's really limiting the writing of people who are not, like, used to and don't naturally, and like we said, nobody naturally speaks standard academic english but like it the fact that most settings force that kind of standard on people is a real limitation in a lot of ways right and it's also baseless (laughs)
1: like Mm -hmm. linguists have disputed since the 90s and probably been disputing since before that like the notion that there is a correct english or a standard english and you know linguistic scholars have been speaking for decades on the fact that all dialects of English are equal, so you know the the upholding of standard American English is literally just linguistically baseless,
3: yeah, I guess I would say that since there's like so many different types of people and upbringings, I guess to like reiterate, it's really hard to expect English to be spoken or written in one way across so many different kinds of people and also I guess for like I guess international students it's like I think it's asking a lot of them to just like learn a whole new language exactly the way it's supposed to be like in quotations so I guess there's that
0: yeah I've also just like and anyone else can feel free to keep going My, my last thing with this part of our questions would be like recently within working in the center like kind of started thinking about the way that we treat English and especially like standard academic English and saying like oh this is the way English is supposed to be it's almost treating it as if like the English language just came into existence like fully formed at some point point. and I don't know the exact history of it but I've like through English classes learned enough about like the etymologies of words that like Language is created in incredibly weird ways. Like, the origin of words comes from everywhere. So the idea that, like, there is one way to speak it is just kind of backwards when i really taken the time to think about it.
2: And if you look at the ancestors, quote-unquote, of English, you know, the people when we were standardizing our spelling, I think a lot of people forget English standard spelling came so late in the game. The French had already done it. The German had already done it. We were late. And I, I'm i not lying. This is real. I wrote a whole essay about this. The way we standard our, standardized our English is we just wanted to sound as smart as possible for some words. So we would just borrow from random Greek letters. The word island, for example, I think. Why is it spelled like that? You know, right? Mm, yeah, with we, the I-S. Yeah. yeah, we that comes from greek spelling there was no reason to do that and there are countless other examples the word knowledge people just thought okay looked better right and and here we are centuries later just like worrying about oh are we going to be formal are we going to be standard right when the people who invented the standard were trying to go off the standard so i think it's funny how everything just kind of comes full circle now
0: i had not heard about either of those but that it's it's both surprising and not because like like I would never have thought that that was the origin of those words but the idea that they are that way just because somebody wanted it to sound smart that that checks out to me somehow. Yeah, we we
2: borrowed a lot of French spellings as well cuz again the French because they had already done a lot of things academically we were like we want to be like the French. Right? I will send you a link to the article. It's incredible how many words that you look at and you're like we we could have just done this the easy way like thought Mm -hmm. could anyways yeah
0: i'm sure there's a ton of things like that (laughs) out there
3: one last thing i wanted to say was like just because something is like i think a lot of times people portray like if things aren't in standard english it's not legit but there's nothing really to back that up like just because it isn't written in a certain way like I don't think it takes away, like, any meaning or significance that the work has.
0: Definitely. that That's something that working in the center has... That's maybe the most valuable thing that working in the center has taught me. So we've gotten into this already. So why is it important to talk about anti-racist pedagogy in relation to writing?
1: I think it's important because, you know, standard academic English is a power structure it's a system that shapes our education, um, and it shapes who is deemed as worthy in our system of education and who is othered. And you, you look at it, you examine who is worthy, who is othered, and <laughs> it becomes a matter of identity. It's, it's racial, it's gendered, it's classed, it's you know related to ability. It's across all these spectrums of human politicality, if that's a word, (laughs) that, um, you know, makes it so important that we begin to unpack and undesign this system that we have in place, because it's oppressing pretty much everybody. And we can talk about, you know, nobody speaks and nobody actually benefits across any walk of identity from standard English, from standard academic English. But that's really why anti-racist pedagogy is so important is because like there is this system and structure in place that is actively, continually oppressing people through the education system.
2: I think Janae mentioned a great point about how it others certain people. And that's actually really dangerous, right? The thing that kind of comes to my head, the example that comes to my head, is after, you know, slavery was abolished, slaves had stories to tell, right? But they didn't tell them. Uh, most slave stories have gone unrecorded. We don't know what happened simply because slaves were, like, their English was not academic. It was it was slave English. It was slave talk, right? And that's dangerous because now we don't know. And now that entire chunk of history is In essence gone we know what we know about slavery through white academics which as you may guess is not necessarily the best source right Mm -hmm. and there are countless other groups where just things have simply gone erased because no one was there to encourage right your english is not good please don't speak about anything right and you know besides telling stories which i think is kind of what we do at the drexel writing center it goes further and it goes beyond in innovations um in writing and other things so it's it's dangerous to society as well because all of that knowledge that should have been there is now lost and i think about that often sometimes
3: i think going off of like stories i feel like strictly standard english can be i guess restrictive at times and maybe it like reduces authenticity like i'm imagining if someone was writing about like say conversations that are happening and In real life they would be happening in like different dialect with slang and everything and if they swapped that out for Standard English, it would change a whole lot to it. I feel And it wouldn't be as real or authentic as it could be
0: Yeah, that's that's a kind of a way that I think about it too and and like how It relates is like it's something i've been told with my writing is sometimes people will say oh you you kind of write like you talk And I I like that. I think it i hope that means i'm expressing myself well but in looking at like the prevalence of standard academic english like the fact that one way of writing one way of speaking is thought of as academic and another isn't that means that like a lot of people probably even the majority of people i would say are not allowed to write like they talk they're not allowed to express themselves in the way that's most effective and like It might really help them, like, because they're not allowed to use one word or another, or, like, not allowed to deviate from what we would call, like, proper grammar. They can't express the ideas that they want to express, and that is a form of oppression. And I think a lot of times it's not viewed as that in academic fields, and I don't think I ever would have thought of it like that before working at the Center.
1: And you know, like a like a poem I mentioned, it tracks back through our entire American history. You know, post Civil War through Reconstruction area area Reconstruction era. My bad. Into civil rights and past to conversations that we're having now. Language has been a part of the conversation on civil rights, and it's been a part of the conversation on systemic racism and how to make a more equitable. America. You you think about the Reconstruction era and you know you can look to W. E. B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington in their stances on, you know, do black Americans who are now emancipated assimilate to white American standards of learning and reading and writing, or do we have the conversation of, all right, black Americans are equal? And so our thought is equal, our writing is equal, this is how we speak, this is how it translates into writing. You had that whole argument between WB Du Bois as a proponent of Ebonics versus Booker T. Washington, who was more a proponent of, like, you know, it'll be better for us as a people if we assimilate. And then you can track, you know, this, is, this could be a whole other conversation, a whole other podcast, but you can track how, like, these conversations and, you know, how they started how they continue how they stay the same how they evolve you know shape fundamentally how we talk about all other forms of English from you know diverse regional dialects of English to the different ways that you know international English speakers engage with writing English it's you know it can all be tracked back to any blackness and you know the history of anti-blackness and black oppression in America, but again, that could be a whole other podcast and a whole other conversation. <laughs> we can we can save that for another time. But you know, putting that out there.
0: Well, I think it definitely ties into this question, and also like that debate between Booker T. Washington and W. B. Du Bois. Like that was over a century ago. I want to say, right? They were like turn of the century ish. I, I want to yeah. say, like. but it's still an issue that's like very prevalent because a lot of academia to be accepted in those fields you for the most part you kind of have to conform to these standard academic english conventions and if you don't your ideas or writing are viewed as like inarticulate or or just like people can ignore what a writer is saying who's not like they can excuse it as oh they're like Not expressing themselves. Well, they might be expressing themselves just fine, but they're being ignored because they're not conforming to these standards. And because people are so set in, like, this is how you should sound when you're being, like, doing academic work or just, like, expressing yourself in general, it's not always academic. It can just be, like, public speaking. If you aren't conforming to these, like, proper and, like, largely like white people perpetuating these standards, like if you're not conforming to those, then you can be easily discredited in these fields and what you're saying ends up being ignored, which is, you know, again, it's a form of oppression. So our last question is how has learning about and working with anti-racist pedagogy changed the way that each of us writes?
3: I could go first. It's definitely helped me realize that I guess I'm gonna say art for the sake, but I definitely realize that art can be like, it's much more well art or writing. It's much more than like a strict set of rules, and I don't really need to play within those rules, and I could do what, like what I need for the work to be better. Like, for example, like I think a few months ago I wrote something about like, me just have like going through anxiety and I guess instead of like having sentences I broke up the sentences and just like put them all over a page which I felt like better displayed how I was feeling compared to if they were just written in paragraphs and I guess another time like I wrote a story about Dhaka Bangladesh and I couldn't see the people there talking like in English or the way people talk say in America so I just put like I just put them talking in Bangla over, I guess, English descriptions. So I guess at the end of the day, it's helped me realize that you can literally do what you want so that your work achieves what you're trying to get. And there shouldn't be that many rules like hindering you in, I guess.
2: I think for me, it has had the dual effect of both being very relieving, but also being very angry. Relieving because, now I don't need to worry. I don't need to worry if that comma is out of place. I don't need to worry if... It's less stressful, right, when you write for professors who work at the writing center, right? Because you know they will accept it. You know they will try to understand, and instead of working around the grammar, they will try to work around your ideas. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. On the flip side, when you go off to the real world, when you step outside of the DWC, it is everywhere. Most recently, I had a class that was in regards to globalization and literature, and one paper, I will admit, I did not spell check it, I didn't proofread it, it was a 3 a.m. assignment, you know how it is, you hit turn in and then you go to bed, right? And the few days after I get notes back, just filled with just grammar right and then at the end you know you have a rubric of course and i got a b minus right not because my ideas were bad my ideas were great but because the grammar was off and i can't and i'm not lying at the end it was like you should probably go to the drexel writing center (laughs) to fix this paper and i was like boy Wait till you find out I'm a peer lead for the writing center.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Reverse Uno.
2: Yes. Yeah, no, but
0: doesn't realize he's preaching to the choir. Yeah.
2: And and it was just it was so disappointing, right? And it mm-hmm. just makes you so angry, but it also makes me feel really relieved. So, it's just it's it's a weird kind of balancing act.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's like the best kept secret (laughs) you know of our work but that's also disappointing because we're like we're not trying to have this be a secret (laughs) like y'all need to know y'all need to hear this and like that's the thing it's like you literally just said my ideas were great and like the purpose of a paper is to engage and develop ideas and relay those ideas so it's evident that the professor who you know gave you that grade understood your concept and your ideas and literally chose to like punish you in a sense for an arbitrary system, a social construct. Grammar is a social construct (laughs) and it's fluid and a lot of its rules are fluid, like associate press with, you know, omitting the Oxford comma, other style guides and keeping the Oxford comma. Like it was literally technology, the printing press, like it saved money to not put an extra comma. And now we have that rule that like from professor to professor, you may or may not be tiptoeing around, you know, and other small things like that, that add up and build up. And another thing that professors fail, I must say that they fail, they get an F to neglect (laughs) or that they fail to acknowledge, is that like, especially today, considering the student debt crisis and considering how many students come from underprivileged backgrounds, You doing that, you giving someone a lower score based on things that like sometimes that they can't control or sometimes that is different from professor to professor and that you just expect students to understand and adapt to and conform to, that's dangerous. It's an act of violence (laughs) in a lot of ways because so many students are depending on scholarships. And in some cases, like An engineering student who's getting by in a very difficult class that, you know, considering their field, like getting a say like a D or a C is really strong. You know, if you add a B minus to that as an English professor, like you're potentially jeopardizing their scholarship because what you think that they need a comma (laughs) or you think Mm -hmm. that they shouldn't have used two semicolons.
2: Well, that's the thing is. So I redid the paper the professor gave me the option to do so and all I did was I right-clicked spell check right-click you know all that I didn't even use my own brain to fix the commas like I just let the computer do it and the professor had you know a rule where you could do it up until the end of the term so I saved it until the end and my grade went from a B plus in the class all the way to an A right well now that's going to impact my gpa right and which will impact my scholarships which will impact where i go to like graduate school and stuff right so you see how it's that minuscule little comma will just have a domino effect Right. so you know when janae and i are saying it's dangerous it it really is dangerous it's not we're not exaggerating we're not joking like it's dangerous all over some commas all over because I think I put, like, an extra I in colonization or, like, whatever I was spelling, right? Like For real. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's like, I professors that are listening, I need you to hear this, (laughs) okay? Because it was a spell check thing. Opama just put it through a spell check. And you might be hearing that and trying to validate your own bias that, oh, students just don't bother with spelling or spell check. She didn't read through her work. She didn't review her work. It's carelessness. It's not. Maybe you can reframe your perspective and do some reading and, you know, we invite you to join this conversation on how maybe the system of grammar, given the way that our language has evolved and our technology has evolved and also we as people have evolved in our understandings of the diversity of language, maybe consider that grammar is maybe a lot more arbitrary than you might have been taught when you were in school, however many
2: years ago. Well, if you care so much, you can put it through the spell checker. You can put it through the grammar checker. like, Period. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just took me five minutes. So if if it's such a, I, I don't know. It, it was something that just that dichotomy of like relief, but also anger.
0: I think like what both of you are kind of talking about what I was going to give for my answer to this, which is like, working with the anti-racist pedagogy and and the writing center in general like beyond our work with the anti-racist pedagogy like it has really changed how i view good writing versus like bad writing because I, I think there is still such a thing as bad writing it just has n- nothing really to do with grammar and like what we normally think of as like correct like in terms of spelling like i wouldn't ever say that like spelling doesn't matter but if you can tell what the word is it kind of doesn't in that case. Like, if you understand the writer's meaning, then I don't think it matters what grammatical choices or like what we would often consider mistakes in like more traditional academic senses. Like, if there's what we would call mistakes, but you can still understand it, I don't think that's really a mistake necessarily. Like, in that case, it's an arbitrary rule that's maybe being bent or broken or something there. And like that, that really has reshaped how I look at what is good writing and what isn't. Because a lot of times I'll, I'll get people come in for appointments and they're like, I'm not very good at writing. And they are coming in with a definition of that that I think is closer to, like, oh, I'm not that good at grammar or I'm not good at using like big words or something like that. And I don't like how that has become so prevalent and the fact that people are afraid to express themselves clearly for for all kinds of reasons like because either they think it's not going to sound smart or it's not going to fit grammatically or it'll be marked down like all of those things are restricting people from expressing their ideas in a clear way that like helps educate their audience or you know just like show that they know what they're talking about I think that's like the case for a lot of writers they'll come in if they know what they're talking about they understand their subject matter and like they can express that clearly that is like the best kind of writing they can do it doesn't have to be fancy and come off as like oh they're like this amazing wordsmith like it doesn't have to be poetic when you're talking about I don't know, like some science concept. As long as it's clear, like, that is good writing. And I think, like, prior to working in the center, I had kind of more internalized those, like, grammar rules. And I I don't really remember how I thought of them back then, but I know, like, when I was learning grammar in, like, middle school, I had no reason to, or I saw no reason to question, like, okay, yeah, this is just how... English is meant to be. I don't think I would have been disillusioned from that had I not started working in the center.
2: And to go off that, I'll have students come in with perfectly fine writing. It's good writing. I understand what they're trying to say. They're writing about, you know, ridiculous things like the economy and all these difficult concepts, right, in very simple, concise language. And they'll be like, I'm not satisfied with it. It doesn't sound like the articles we read. Yeah, because the articles you read were purposely convoluted because the articles you yes. read were was not meant for the average reader, right The articles you read were meant for like the top one percent of those in academia. so in comparison, your essay is better because your essay is more accessible to the public, is it not? right? And then you'll tell students this, and their mind is blown. Oh, really so it is it is better if more people can read my right, yeah, it is it's more accessible. <laughs> right. But, yeah,
0: and I hate the way that we've gotten away from that. Like the fact that being convoluted and hard to understand. Like, who? Like, what is this doing? If you're if you're trying explicitly to not communicate clearly to people, who is it for? Then it's for you to look smart. I <laughs> yeah, think.
2: it's for you to <laughs> wave your own flag, right?
0: Sorry, I cut you off there. Were, no, did you no, have more? I didn't.
2: That that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Period. <laughs>
0: okay that is the end of our questions for anyone listening like you can go to dwc online to schedule appointments with us and we also have some more like published works on the topics we were covering today we have stuff like that on our website if you want to look into it more there's way more research behind this you
2: can also follow us on instagram at drexel writing center i think that's important because our Instagram is now popping thanks to our operations manager, Ellie. And you can find our posts, you can DM there. And we also have a link tree if you want to make an appointment through Instagram as well. So I do want to say that.
0: We also have a Twitter,
1: at uh, DrexelWriting. If you're interested in seeing how some DWC alum and how myself, you know, put our writing into practice, you can follow my publishing group, Lady Q. You can find us at LiddyQ.org or on Instagram at LiddyQ.mag. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're an equity-centered publishing group that focuses on the diversity and validity of all voices. We publish quarterly creative magazines and multimedia with writing and art. And we also have our anti-racist project development team, Intersections, that just released our publication on the experiences and realities of BIPOC creatives. Um,
0: You can find all of that at littyqueue.org. All right, cool. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another episode at some point. Before we go, we also want to give a lot of credit to all the other Drexel Writing Center peer readers and staff who helped bring this podcast into existence. There were a lot of people aside from the four of us who put a lot of work into this
3: podcast and we want to make sure that they are given their due credit. Thanks for listening.